Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with the region's most fantabulous reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is generously supported by Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies, and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest while treading as lightly on the earth as possible. Living out their mantra, earth, beer, wait, (laughs) earth first, beer second. Sometimes I get those crossed up, wouldn't be good. Uh, Our guest today is Todd Montgomery. He is a professor in hospitality management at Oregon State University Cascades, program lead for the school's hospitality management program. He has worked in the hospitality industry for over 23 years and at OSU since 2012. His research focuses on the impact of automation and tech on both customer and employee satisfaction. He is also the co-host and co-producer of Tech Trek, a TV show highlighting innovative automation technology from around the world. Thanks for being here, Todd. Yeah, thanks for having me. Here in quotes as we, uh, <laughs> as we right. continue to, to be in our little bubbles here. Um, so let's start with some background. How did you become interested in a career in tourism, of all things? Sure. Um, you know, as a kid, I, I was kind of a sick kid, and I didn't get a chance to travel a lot uh, because of uh, because of that. Um, but always, uh, always appreciated and always wanted to do it. Um, and you know, roughly around my sophomore year in college, I had surgery, and luckily everything. Uh, worked it out, and I had the ability to travel. And so that few months later, I went on a cruise to the Caribbean as part of a school project, which <laughs> I, I just, you know, that's, I still think back on that. can't believe that was part of a class. But anyways, <laughs> I did it. And uh, just just loved it, fascinated. And upon graduation, I interviewed with several international hospitality companies and joined Hyde International in Asia Pacific. Uh, and then that just was the fork in the road for around 15 years uh, in Asia Pacific. So that wasn't in the bio you sent over, you said you worked for Hyatt. So you were in their, rest, in their hospitality industry. Yeah, I started with Hyatt International um, and in a place called Saipan, which is sort of like Japan's Hawaii. So it's about okay. south, south of Japan. And then Worked for them for a number of years, went back to graduate school, then joined Starwood in Asia Pacific out of the Sydney office. It was really Sydney and Singapore, split time between those two locations, and, um, and then later on joined Pros. And the common denominator of everything has been either travel hospitality or Asia Pacific uh, in right. really most, most of my career. So um, were you in Japan when they experienced some of their natural disasters? over there yeah for sure and and several uh not just that i was in bali during uh one of the terrorism events i was in uh micronesia during several uh typhoons that essentially wiped out the tourism market i was in hong kong during sars um just a number of different places uh and that's just you know in asia pacific these sort of external events that tremendously disrupt the business uh, of travel is fairly common. Um, and so uh, it, it, it was just, it was still though shocking to see it happen here in the U.S. Yeah. Have you, um, what would you say, say is one of your takeaways about how these kind of industries come back after these natural disasters? 
Well, there's a very common saying uh, that, you know, we're the first industry to get hit and the last to come back. And that's something that I learned in the 90s. And it yeah. continues to be true. Uh, and, and so, the, you know, and there's been events where you just think, there's just no way. There's no way this is too big of an event. This is too many bad things have happened. How does an island recover from a, a typhoon that essentially wiped out uh, most of the businesses and, and housing? And yet it still comes back every single time. And so the, the takeaway from that is, and this is more philosophical, but humans want to travel. And, and they will find ways to travel. Uh, and I think we see that and we saw that on Memorial Day here in Bend and across the nation where there were risks that were out there, but people were willing to take that risk because they, the need to travel was for them was so great. And, um, and, and every time, right, you see people kind of trickle in, you know, I think of a typhoon or I think of SARS. You know, it's usually the backpackers or the specialty tourists, such as the surfers or the, the hardcore golfers, maybe the divers. They come first. People learn, get more comfortable right. with it, and then the other groups start coming back. Uh, in, in the age of the Internet where information spreads so quickly, particularly on social media, uh, that, that period from recovery to start again has just gotten more and more condensed as the information gets out there. Well, I... I what, we're, what we've experienced here in Bend is as soon as they cracked the door, the sprinter van tourists just kind of drove right through and they just have not stopped. Whether it's a Dodge Ram or a Sprinter, I don't know, there's got to be 3,000 of them right now circling the town like sharks. But, but we've seen that, you know, Bend has certainly like opened up, um, you know, as soon as there's been a light lifting, you know, the tourists are very interested in, uh, in being here and recreating. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a double-edged sword, right? And on one respect, and I think Laurel's article really ca captures this very well, but on one respect, it provides uh, revenue and work and much needed uh, money to businesses uh, and our families in our community. On the other side, though, is it too early? Are we, are we playing sort of the short game versus the long game? And, and it's a balancing act and everybody's trying to balance it. Visibend's doing a great job of trying to balance it. Uh, travel Oregon and the rest of the organizations. But the reality is, is, you know, we're a free society and we are free to make individual choices. And you see that uh, across the board. Uh, and, and I suspect that will continue in these sort of street three stages that we're in. Right now we're in this sort of pre-vaccine stage. And then at the end of that, we see the post-vaccine stage. And now it seems like we're kind of in this new middle stage of of what's this going to look like when the vaccine's released? What's that, what's that, you know, mushy middle of six to nine to 12 months? What's that going to look like? Not just only for the travel industry, but for our society as a whole. Yeah. I, I mean, the vaccine, and, and, and I know we're not going to be in anybody's area with philosophical, you know, things like this, but with all of the like, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. I mean, I can only you know, wait for the get the vaccine, don't get the vaccine, what that's going to mean for comfort level for people coming in. Do you, how does the tourism industry or how does hospitality navigate something like that? It seems like it's just more, much more volatile in this day and age than say even when you were back in Japan. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, in SARS, uh, you know, depending on where you were, Hong Kong, Singapore, places like that that were hit pretty hard. Uh, 
you know, their, their form of government is a little bit stricter, right? They lay down the law and people follow right. that law. Uh, and so it was from a centralization, uh, um, from the point of how do you control this from a government standpoint, it was much simpler. Uh, and so now you have this kind of, kind of situation. And I just, I just think people, you know, the, the maths, the vaccine conversations are going to be so difficult, but I, you know, I, maybe the best thing that I could equate it to is how employees are putting in, having to be put in the situation where they have to enforce masks by the customers. Right. Sure. An incredibly difficult, uh, you know, just being frank, an unfair situation uh, to our workers uh, to be put in that situation. But who's going to do it? I mean, you see uh, probably the most structured of all travel companies or subsectors, the airline industry, right? Once you get them on the plane, you sort of have a very, uh, a very, stru- very nice structure. There, and they're even having troubles with it. So now imagine just a small mom and pop restaurant or, a, a, you know, a, a, even a chain hotel. It's just incredibly difficult. And I think that mushy middle, you know, when that transition happens, uh, you know, the, the big companies, McDonald's, the Hilton's, those large travel and service companies are going to have procedures in place and they're going to have support. It's the independents and the smaller ones that are just not going to have the capital or the access to that expertise that are going to be really put in an even more difficult situation than, than probably they are now. Sure. Well, one of the other things you talk about is the importance of tourism travel to the Oregon uh, economy more so than other places. How, um, I mean, even though we're late to come back, are we going to be late to come back given the importance of, the, of tourism and how much emphasis there is on like, I mean, you can feel the tourism industry just kind of like waiting to jump. Uh, yeah. Do you, th- well, I mean, let me just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the thing that shocked me the most was the pent-up demand. Uh, and I think we saw that at Memorial Day. I really, it, it, it's just shocking how it, that switch that you referred to was turned on. And, and so, you know, and, and so I kind of think about this in a couple of different ways. First of all, yes, there's definitely pent-up demand, but how much of that pent-up demand are just people anticipating a difficult fall and just saying, hey, this is the time to do it. Uh, this right. is our chance to travel. It's warm. Um, Yes, there's a lot of scary things out there, but I can't, and I have three kids under eight. Trust me, I can't keep my kids in the house any longer. I've got to, I've got to get them out. I've got to have, get them experiences. We've got to see, see other things because this fall potentially could be very difficult. So, so that makes me wonder, what does that growth return cycle look like? Are we just going to see, just like we saw Memorial Day, a, a spike? And then really kind of a leveling off, but a different, right? Weekends are much stronger than weekdays. So it's a different type of traveler. And then in the fall, what happens then? My guess is it probably goes down. And then that's when we enter that stage of, or hopefully we enter that stage of whether it's maybe a vaccine or some kind of longer term solution. And then the industry stabilizes and people try to figure out, you know, what's the new normal? How do we travel? What kind of risks do we want to take? Um, you know, all those very difficult decisions that people are making. Well, a lot of that, I think a lot of the tourism industry's got to get hampered. I would think hampered by the, um, 
kind of regulations that the school district's putting out where sure. these parents are going to play a larger role in their kids' education in the future? Does that mean that, you know, they're firing up the TV in the sprinter van and they're driving around? I, I, I don't think so. I think they're probably going to be rooted down where they are and that, yeah. that'll probably impact, impact fall as well. And the economy as a whole, I don't, you know, as, as I think you're right to point out, people feel a little more flush now than with the CARES money and the, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the PPP money bolstering people up. Are we going to get an extension? Is that going to be something you're going to see? And then the other thing I'm super curious about is the business traveler. Like, you know, I, I imagine when the vaccine comes around, you'll, we'll see a spike because it won't be optional to be part of a fortune 500 company where you don't travel, you know, any longer. But um, have you heard or seen much on from the travel sector of, um, I mean, the business travel sector? Because I don't hear a lot about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously groups, you know, it's just not happening. It's not going to happen for uh, probably a, a post vaccine period. Uh, you know, so they've been hit hard. The business traveler, you know, that, that part is also difficult because, you know, there's typically an approval process to go travel for business, right? right? And there is a certain liability that a company takes when they would send an employee somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's part of the calculus that organizations are, are making. And that's probably like some of these other things, that's probably the last return. And then you have just you know, the, the Zoom culture, the, the something that always existed. And I think we always kind of wondered, like, why aren't we doing more of these kind of online meetings? Yeah, right. Why am I getting on a plane to go shake somebody's hand? And this period has really forced us to say, you know what? I didn't really like this before, but it's functional and it works. And it sure beats, you know, two rough days of travel uh, for a 30-minute meeting. Uh, and so... Right. A lot of the, the data out there, a lot of what people are talking about is that the business traveler, which is the premium traveler for, uh, for, from a revenue perspective for businesses, for, sure. for the hotel, restaurant business, that will be down. And that's something that will be down for quite a while uh, post-vaccine. It's going it's, it's gonna, to, that's one of those longer term implications of what's happened. Okay. Laurel, did you want to jump in with some questions? Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you're on the board of this event, and um, what has the mood been like in terms of like balancing the needs of all these tourism businesses and then the community backlash against travelers coming here? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, and I, I've got to, you know, really, I've just been really impressed with Kevin and his team. Uh, talk about a difficult situation. Uh, on those meetings and, and, you know, keep in mind those board meetings are open to the community. The people that join those have all come with great questions. And I have, and I got to be honest, I, I feel like everybody has really struck that balance between the, the benefits and costs really well. Uh, and, and have also recognized that, you know, we don't want to go out there and, and really start pushing for travelers to come when we're not really set up for it yet. We don't really know, uh, what business is going to look like in the future, what kind of experience they're going to have. And so, you know, just go back to your initial question. The mood has been positive. It's been incredibly tough, you know, we're dipping into our reserve, uh, waiting, you know, for the launch of, of, you know, when the time is right. But 
you know, when that question comes, do you encourage or discourage travelers? You know, that's not really a visit bin decision. That's really a city a local governance decision. And, and we abide by that, um, of course. Um, but when it's time to turn it on, when it's time to, you know, for the recovery, uh, VisitBend is very well prepared to do that. They've got a lot of plans in place, programs and, uh, in place. And I will say that is a little bit different. You are, if you look around the nation, there are some uh, tourism organizations that are being a lot more aggressive towards trying to get people in the door now. Um, and just as a board, as, a, as an organization, we just felt like, that wasn't the right decision, and we're going to follow what the uh, you know city, region, state guidelines are. I can I can remember Laurel. I can remember when um, I mean Bend has always had a love hate relationship with its tourist economy. I mean, I remember early days when Visit Bend for or or yeah Visit Bend, they weren't Visit Bend at the time. I forget their pre name, but <clears throat> had worked to get that a flight directly to L.A. And we had written a story about the fact that. Woo, we got a direct flight to LA and we got so much backlash about the fact that we were bringing people from LA to Bend and how horrible that was going to be. And I remember prior to the recession, the same kind of anti-tourist sentiment that welled up as people were doing well and didn't think they needed the tourist economy anymore. Um, we saw that in some of the elections coming prior to this, to right before this happened, where we were having conversations again about how much is too much. And um, I, I get the feeling that coming out of this, while there's still the tourist or terrorist, you know, conversation going on, uh, that should probably subside given the economic concerns that the region's going to be in. Isn't that, would you say you see that in a lot of places where they have been hit with natural disasters? Uh, I, I would say I've, I've, in the best of times and the worst of times, this is the, the conversation of a, a, an attractive tourist destination. Uh, you know, if you think about, you know, and I, I try to be objective on here, uh, on this, but if you think about the things- You don't that, have to be, Todd. No, just so I'm you know. To, I'm bored because I have you know, students on one side and sure. I have just fly those students. And so I really hear right. from both sides, it's a unique position, but you know, how do you, how do you strike that balance? But I, I, got, I often go back to, if you look at the businesses the, and, and the, the services, the events, all the things that really makes Ben special, the simple question is, would they happen if it wasn't for tourists? And I think an example that I think anybody can relate to is, is Bachelor. Would Mount Bachelor be as big as it is if there was not for, for tourists? Would it have as many lifts? Would it offer as many amenities? Would we have as many restaurants and good restaurants if it wasn't for tourists. And what's fascinating this from an economic standpoint is usually you kind of, you, know, you try to imagine, you try to model that, you take a sample, but we actually get to see what it's like now. And we see these businesses, they're, a lot of them just can't make it on locals alone. Right. And sure. so they're making very difficult choices. And depending on how this recovery looks, uh, we may see a glimpse into what that looks like. Uh, what Bend is without tourism, and then, and then, and all the amenities that come with it. And then the question becomes, you know, for the average local citizen, is that good or bad? Um, but one thing I want to make sure really clear, uh, crystal clear, uh, things that I really focus on the, on the research side is, you know, all the different stakeholders in tourism, but specifically, you know, I, if you look at 
who tourism benefits and what jobs are produced. Yeah, we've got some challenges with living wage and things like that, but we're also an industry that is incredibly diverse, that serves and employs people that are on the fringes, uh, that gives people a foot or a chance to succeed, foot on the table or food on the table, get their children a better education for their future. I mean, so a lot of times the focus is on middle class, upper income, while this restaurant or this ski resort or whatever that is. But the reality is, is it's, it's those people that are working when we're on vacation or people that are working overnight to stock, you know, our, our, uh, the, uh, the, the produce. I mean, all of these things. And I feel like their store really isn't being represented uh, generally in this recovery. We know that they're the hardest hit. We know right. that minorities, we know women have been hit harder in this um, period than, than anybody else. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not here to be a rah, rah, rah for the industry. We have our challenges. But at the bottom line is, is we provide for a lot of those people on the fringe. And, and, uh, and without it, we, we are starting to see what happens. Uh, you know, not just to the families, but their kids as well. So, you know, that argument of tourism is it good or bad, uh, it's such a complicated issue. And I wish there was a black or white answer, but uh, I, I just, if people really tried to understand it at a deeper level, they would see that they're just, it's maybe not if it's good or bad, it's whether it's good or bad short-term or good or bad long-term. And really you have to kind of look at the, the long-term uh, view of this for our community, for our people, for our um, destination for our environment, uh, all that. I've always thought it's kind of an, an odd thing when we debate, is it good or is it bad? When you live in a gorgeous place like this, you know you're going to have tourists. You're either managing them or you're not managing them. You're either giving them the tools they need when they get here to have a good experience and, you know, take care of the place and, and do well, or you're being hostile and, and creating some weird environment for them and you're not helping any, any of the business or are allowing us to do the kind of good work you want to do around the tourism sector. So, I mean, I remember there was some, Kevin, had to give some uh, presentation about, you know, do we encourage it or don't we encourage it? And it's, it, it, I don't think, I mean, he does a good job of promotion, but I mean, look at the mountains. I mean, they're coming. They're, they're Again, here come those Sprinter vans. They got a big windshield and that mountain looks great <laughs> behind it. So Yeah, you know, you, you, every time you say the Sprinter thing, it really reminds me. <laughs> I moved to Oregon about uh, uh, eight years ago. We were overseas and we, we were trying to find the right place for us. We chose Bandon. One of the things that struck me about Oregon that I still almost laugh about daily is that it seems like in Oregon, you buy a vehicle. And then you buy a vehicle uh, to be able to carry other stuff. And then you pack all that stuff on your vehicle and then you drive around. I've just have never seen uh, an area with so much gear on their automobiles. As, oh, yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated, fascinated by it. It's why I keep bringing it up. I'm fascinated by it because the Sprinter vans are only getting more complex. If you pull up behind one, you can start to see they – they were originally just tall and thin. Now they come off the back, the sides, the top. It's, it's incredible. You know, and I, I can't say there isn't a tinge of jealousy when I look at it at the same time that I'm mocking them as I drive. But that's, <laughs> that's the way it is. It's amazing. <laughs> it's truly amazing. But it makes, I mean, you know, the out, I'm originally from the Midwest. 
So, uh, you know, special place to see just everybody out and enjoying outdoors. And, you know, in the Midwest, what you do is the clouds come in the winter and you go out and eat and you watch sports on TV and you wait for the summer. And we're so lucky that this is a year-round destination where we can be out and enjoying all those things. Yeah, certainly feel lucky. Um, other, uh, Laurel, I'm going to turn it back over. Do you have another questions? For yeah, sure. We should probably wrap it up here, but I'll just conclude by um, just asking you a little bit about your research. I know you've focused on workers in the tourism industry. Um, I'm wondering some of to hear some of your insights and how that may apply to people in the industry here in Bend. Well, you know, first, I would say that first part, you know, we've talked about travel and just people's human desire to travel. Um, I, I think the other part to that is that we constantly see is these jobs that were being created uh, in the surveys we do about job satisfaction and particularly within the hospitality industry and compared to other industries is, you know, people don't want to do mundane and routine tasks. We see that across the board. Uh, and a lot of our job or a lot of, our, our, especially our frontline jobs are related to that. And, and so how do you balance that? And the other part to this is, you know, one of the areas like the tech truck shows you mentioned, the things that we really focus on is what's that technology gonna look like in the future? And we shot a show in Tokyo to kind of get a glimpse of what's happening. And it was, we shot that in December and, and it, was, it was shocking. It was shocking how much adoption of technology was happening in travel. and it's been put on a rocket ship since COVID. I mean, the technology has really been, how do you solve this? Our industry is thousands of years old and sometimes we're a little bit traditional and it's hard to change. And we had companies overnight have to figure out how to do takeout, how to restaff, how to you know, optimize their products and services. And that is ultimately for most of those companies led to more and more technology. And so they'll be very interesting to see the impacts on that. Um, I think in the short term now, they're, they're you know, with the, the jobless rate to what it is, it's going to be very interesting to see what it, whether it comes back, how much of it comes back, or how many companies have simply said, we've re-engineered our processes to be able to do more with less. We fulfilled that with the technology. And then the part that I'm really interested in overall is customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, you know, we've been able to maintain or possibly even exceed those levels uh, before. And, and so it's going to be very interesting to see how companies adjust, how uh, customer behavior changes. You know, I remember in March, I wore a mask uh, to Home Depot and, and I think I even had my, uh, it was kind of cold, so I justified I hadn't even had gloves on. Because I, mean, I didn't know what was going on. I, I remember SARS, and I remember SARS was weird, and nobody knew. And everybody looked at me incredibly weird. Uh, in fact, I had some kids pointing at me. And, and you know, and now I, you know, I have this, you know, sweet. I don't know what this is—a little scarf thing that I just wear all the time now. And I pull it over, and I just think, what about even post-vaccine? Will I continue to wear that? Will I continue to think social distance? Are our kids? having such an abrupt change, is this just the way that they're gonna view interaction with people? And then how are those, you know, what's that gonna shape organizations and how they design processes and business? And then, you know, kind of one of your other questions is, what kind of innovation and entrepreneurship is gonna come out of there? And it's gonna, you know, we're just, for as bad as everything's been, it's gonna be incredibly fascinating to see 
you know, two, three, five years down the road, what this, what all of these major adjustments we've made as a society, how they affect things. Because I can tell you in Japan and other places in Asia, masks are very, very common, particularly in fall. And that was, that's been going on for years. And they've become uh, an accessory. I got this one sort of spaceship craft one. But if you go to Asia, you see all really cool, you know, face mask design coordinated with their outfits. And it's just become <laughs> a part of their everyday, like their sunglasses or grabbing their phone. You know, is that what we're going to see? And then, you know, what are the implications of that? It, you know, nobody really knows, but it's going to be fun to watch this. Todd, with, with regard to the tech aspect of the hospitality industry, especially with regard to economies and, and how these industries come back, I mean, isn't there kind of that dark side to some of this where, <clears throat> I mean, it's what we've all been waiting for, right? The, the completely automated experience where, you know, for a lot of low-income workers, hospitality industry is, is where they make their home and their money. But you are right. It's becoming a lot the apps are better, the video conferencing, all of these things don't, I mean, as you've gotten into this, I mean, these moves towards tech, they're accelerating that rate of change. Is it, are, you, are you seeing that? Oh, for sure. And I think that there's been different statistics on this, but essentially when asked about the impacts of automation or you know, them, some kind of technology replacing somebody's job, it's something like 60% of people think that somebody else's job will be automated and only 25% think their own job will be automated. Right, right. right? There's a sort of interesting, what I'm doing is, is very important uh, and can't be automated. But, you know, part of the reason of being in Tokyo was, is the pretty much the largest robotics conference in the world. And they had an entire floor dedicated to service automation and you, nobody's safe. <laughs> I mean, there are going to be impacts uh, across the board and, you know, I think what, from our graduates, from our program perspective, why I'm encouraged by this is because, like I said, we have this living wage challenge. And so if you are now going to ask people to manage service, manage people, but also manage technology, you know, really the nervous system of a lot of businesses, you know, they're going to get paid more, right? They're going to be asked to do more. So salaries are going to go up. Uh, and for those with the right training, they're going to see increased opportunities, increased wages, and that's very exciting. But what that doesn't account for, and I think what you're referring to is, oh, absolutely, what happens to the unskilled? Right. And you know, mothers, single mothers, uh, students looking to pay for college, all of these people that really the hospitality industry has been a tremendous, uh, a tremendous opportunity for them to to bridge that next stage in their life. And what happens if that, that's not around? And then also just kind of going broadly speaking, what about those just, and there's a lot of Americans that are just people that, you know, for whatever reason have decided the occupations they have chosen and the education and the skills. I mean, the reskilling, the upskilling, you know, what's that going to look like? That's a, at a university, as, a, as somebody that's in charge of a, of a program, this is, I think about this constantly, is, are we doing it the most effective way? You know, what's the return on investment of that training? What's the, re the investment that somebody makes in themselves? And are they able to get the return? And then is the outcome there, right? Is the job available for what they train to do? That well, is not, not if the technology keeps ramping up. I mean, it's get, if you're getting better and better technology, then you need, it's like you said, there are fewer and fewer people needed to control it and larger number of people that are getting replaced okay. by it. And 
um, you know, we're going to veer off into government assistance and all kinds of programs and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I do, I do believe that that is one of the outcomes, even in the, the thing that you brought up with regard to the way children are experiencing education now due to the pandemic, much more comfortable with the video conferencing, much more comfortable and, and part of their world where, this is how they interact. They're not expecting when they show up maybe in the future to a hotel to have a human being wait on them right there. They'd be very comfortable with the punch key like you are at Home Depot when you're scanning, you're working for them now, as Bill Burr said, I'm scanning my products, I'm bagging my products, you know, I'm, right. I'm an employee <laughs> essentially. Well, and that's why, you know, at first when I started the research, I really looked at how the impact on employee satisfaction, but it just was very clear early on that this also has an impact on customer satisfaction. And if, if you aren't hitting those customer satisfaction levels, the employee satisfaction levels aren't going to match. And so it really is a, uh, it's, it's two factors that you have to weigh equally. And as an organization, you've got to sort of figure that out. And that's, now that's from the private sector, but from a government standpoint, right? From a policy standpoint, what do you need to do to ensure those opportunities to move forward, to move upward mobility are still there. The people that are on the fringe that don't have the skill can either develop those skills or there's still opportunities for them to do. That is a question, regardless of what industry you're looking at is, is, is being discussed, but because of COVID, I, I feel like the focus is going to move a lot more towards hospitality because we've been the ones impacted the most. Our adoption of technology has been, at least in the last few months has been at really an incredible rate. And so we're going to be the first to feel it. And we also, once again, go back to the diverse workforce, a lot of unskilled workers, low paying wages for, and especially the frontline jobs. And we're feeling the impact and we're going to be the ones that they need to get back to work. And so my hope is that policies and uh, uh, that are, you know, that are being developed are, are, you know, they're being taken serious. I've joined several Zoom calls on this very subject, and I know people are thinking about it, but there is no silver bullet on this one. It's going to be a challenge, yeah, but it's going to take um, everybody with an open mind uh, and um, some compassion to, to figure it out. Yeah. Well, Todd, we are at the end of our time. Is there anything that you'd like to speak to before we uh, part ways here, video-wise? No, no, no. I appreciate your time. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, it was good seeing you all in person or <laughs> right. how we do it now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, Todd, thanks for your time. This has been the Ben Don't Break podcast uh, with Todd Montgomery and Laurel Bronze. And appreciate you guys listening. Thank you.